I would like us to go to the throne of grace just briefly one more time, but I do think it's really good to acknowledge uh, John and Elizabeth Miller and family. It's great to have you guys moving from Carlisle, Pennsylvania to Macon, Georgia, and uh, taking a new role, and we wish you the best there, and God's blessing on your ministry and lives, and kids just want to say new situation, hoping that goes well for you guys too. Uh, Let's um, ask God's grace uh, one more time before we open the word. Our Father, would you grant that with the help of your Holy Spirit, with Christ indwelling us, Would you help us live as those who do not give lip service only to being bound for the promised land, but who with the eye of faith and with our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ are running the race ahead of us, who are living as pilgrims in this world and children of the promise. Give us grace, we pray, for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 35. Our text tonight is Exodus 35, 30, through the end of chapter 37. That's 73 verses, and in 40 minutes, I am not doing a verse-by-verse detailed exposition. That would be impossible. But I would like to read for us from 3530 through the end of verse 7 of chapter 36 to set the context. Page 76, if you're grabbing a Bible, uh, the ESV Bible in front of you. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, son of the, tri- of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab And every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come up 
or to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. This is God's word and it is good. And that's the portion that I'd like to read for tonight and then we'll refer to it as we go through the text. You know that when we talk about real estate, the axiom about real estate to be successful at it is simply location, location, location. Maybe there's more to that, but that's oft quoted. That's what's important. It's everything. So what does the Spirit have to do with the Christian life? Everything. And you'll see the Spirit in our passage tonight. The Spirit, of course, was evident in Pastor Jamie's message this morning on the new covenant and baptism. And Peter's message at Pentecost in Acts 2 was that the very source for the miracle at Pentecost, that is these people speaking in strange tongues, was God's fulfillment of his prophetic word through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then in response to those who were cut to the heart, it was that those who would repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, it was these who would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter adds there in verse Acts 2, I think verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And if you didn't see the notes in our Friday nights or Friday notes about reading these 73 verses in advance, no worries. I want to take this portion from Exodus 35, 30 through the end of chapter 37 And I want us to see the role of the Spirit in two main points. You see it in the title. That is, workers with the Spirit and then a dwelling for the Spirit. Workers with the Spirit and then a dwelling for the Spirit. You might know that in Luke's writing, both in his gospel and then in his history of the early church in the book of Acts, there is this emphasis on the Spirit, the Spirit who fills, the Spirit who gives white life, who endows with wisdom. In fact, as we have received recommendations uh, for the office of elder and deacon, we're mindful that uh, the words there in Acts 6 that the apostles gave the people was to look for men who would take care of that practical need of making sure the widows were fed, men who could be described as full of the Spirit 
and of wisdom. And there's echoes of that tonight as we look at these craftsmen, workers with the Spirit, and then a dwelling for the Spirit. I think it's helpful to simply take the text and understand that then, from chapter 36, verse 10, to the end of chapter 36, the focus is on, or from verse 8, from 8 to 38, the focus there is on the tabernacle. And then, for chapter 37, which we'll look at tonight, it's the pieces of furniture that will go inside uh, inside the tabernacle, okay? And you go from inside out, the ark there with the mercy seat on top, inside the most holy place with the table and lampstand, the altar of incense outside that, between the veil and between the entrance to the tabernacle. So what's the context? The context is simply this. Moses has come down from Mount Sinai a second time at the end of chapter 34 in the pattern of God's prophet coming down from God to deliver the word of God to God's people, to God's covenant people. In this, our Lord Jesus, the true and better Moses, is pictured for us. And two weeks ago, we considered this topic of both gifts and giving in the first, I think, from chapter 34, verse 29, to chapter 35, verse 29. And we saw the call or the command for all the people of Israel to bring what they had to make a contribution as the Lord moved them and to bring the Lord's contribution. It's interesting. It wasn't so much their contribution, but they were to bring the Lord's contribution as though it was his. We see that in chapter 35, verses 4 through 9. And then was a summary of the materials they need. You might notice there's no quantities. There's just a description of what was needed. And then in verses 10 through 19, we find a summary of all that they would need to construct or fabricate. Number one, the tabernacle. Two, its furnishings. Three, the courtyard. And then the holy garments for Aaron and the priests. They were to do this freely out of generous hearts. No one pressured them. They didn't fill out a pledge card. The Lord made the need known through Moses, and the people responded as God by his Spirit moved them to give. Some brought little, some brought much. No doubt children brought goods. Women delivered their portion, and men Contributed, young and old in varying amounts in differing materials, some rough, some as found. Others who did initial work on the materials, like the skillful women who spun the yarn with their hands. You see that in Exodus chapter 35 and verse 25. Even the women who employed their skills to spin the goat's hair, there in verse 26. And we find both the contribution of materials of material goods, but also the giving of ability. That's why we call it gifts, but also giving. Giving of their treasure, but also giving of their talent. When we think of time, talent, and treasure. And so the people had already begun bringing the Lord's contribution to a common gathering point for the commencement 
of the work. You see that there in Exodus 35 and verse 20. It says, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. Now, I want us to consider the workers with the Spirit. And I want us to focus initially on chapter 35, verse 30, there through verse 7 of chapter 36. God, we may say, gives the Spirit. God gives the Spirit to men. God gives the Spirit to men as workers to accomplish his purposes and not theirs. I want you to see seven features of how the Lord gives workers the Spirit or gives workers with the Spirit. And you'll track with me here. These are very brief, uh, but I want to give you seven. First of all, I want you to see that God's gift is public. Look, Moses says, then Moses said to the people of Israel, see, the Lord has called. Bezalel did not have to promote himself. God did this through Moses. And kids, let me apply this. There's a principle from the book of Proverbs that says, let another praise you and not yourself. All right? Let another praise you and not yourself. Let others tell you that they see ability and gifts in you. You don't need to promote yourself. The cream will rise to the top, all right? And by Moses, as we think that God's gift is public, the word was given that a special worker or special workers with the Spirit had been given to lead the construction of the tabernacle, its furnishings, the holy garments, and the courtyard. God called these men to the work through Moses publicly. They did not do an in run in a private campaign to put out to everyone how great their gifts were. And there's no doubt that they didn't just wake up and have ability. God, as it says, that they were given the Spirit, as you read this verse, as you read these words, that he of Bezalel in verse 31, chapter 35, was God had filled him with the Spirit of God that expressed itself in skill and intelligence and knowledge, no doubt that he cultivated. It wasn't like one day he was dumb as a doornail and the next day he woke up and he was incredibly talented and gifted. God's gifts are given through normal cultivation of natural ability. But secondly, God's gift is personal. He says, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel. And there was Aholiab as well, but not just these two men. And you'll notice for emphasis, you would be surprised from, if you begin to look at, look at verse 10 of chapter 36. He coupled, verse 11, he made, verse 12, he made, Verse 13, he made. Verse 14, he also made. He made. Verse 16, he coupled. Verse 9, and he made. Verse 18, and he made. There is no doubt that God has given personal gifts to men in Bezalel and Oholiab with those that they taught and mentored are doing the work here. All right? These are particular men 
with particular spirit-endowed gifts. God's gift is public. God's gift is personal. And God's gift requires cultivation and divine filling. And he gives skill and ability, and we're encouraged both to cultivate it and employ it for the greater good. It would be a natural question if you're having a shepherding visit in your home to anticipate this question by one of the elders of Grace Baptist Church of Taylor's. What do you believe your spiritual gifts are? What are your abilities? And how are you presently using them to advance the cause of Christ in the church of Jesus Christ? How are you using that? What are your abilities? Have you identified them and are you cultivating them and putting them to use for the greater good? It said he, God, has filled him. Look at that present tense. He has filled him with the spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. Think about that. But fourthly, I want us to see as we think about how the Lord gives workers who are endowed with the Spirit that God's gifts are drawn from the larger body of his people. Just notice the distinction here. It appears that Bezalel was maybe the lead. He was first preeminent to Aholiab. Bezalel was from the tribe of Judah, but Aholiab was from the tribe of Dan. All his servants are not cookie cutter. There are some that are like doubting Thomas that need to touch and feel and see. They need the evidence and the confirmation. And there's Peter that runs in and speaks first and asks questions later right? Some are quiet and unassuming, others loud and boisterous. Some are sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary, others scurrying about like Martha. Notice how God's gifts are shared with the larger body of his people. Bezalel and Aholiab not only possess specific spirit-endowed gifts, but look what it says in verse 34 there, of chapter 30. It says, and he, that is God, has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. What were they to teach? They were to teach all this knowledge, all this this uh, intelligence, all this skill, this craftsmanship that God had filled them with, that God had entrusted them with. Not their ideas, not their, all right? Let me actually get ahead of myself. They were not to sequester their gifts or abilities to themselves with the fear that their student would outshine the master, rather They were tasked and inspired, actually inspired, to teach others, to multiply then their abilities by teaching others and thus leveraging their talents for the greater good. Are you the expert? Let me ask you a question. With brothers and sisters, are you the one that's got all the answers? Are you the one that's enabling and empowering others and encouraging and putting a hand on the small of a brother or sister's back and saying, go, do, serve, love, pray, work, worship. You're needed. Your contribution is needed. It doesn't matter how small. 
The sixth thing is that God's gifts are given for the accomplishment of his purposes, not personal agendas. Look at chapter 36. I want you to notice this. This is important in verse 1. The stewardship of the skill and intelligence that was given to Bezalel and Aholiab and everyone that they would train was given to these artisans for this purpose, that they shall work, is the language, that they shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Obedience, obedience. Not their ideas, not their agendas, but the Lord's. There's a finally a seventh thing as we think about this gifting of workers with the Spirit. And that is that God's gift of Spirit-endowed workers is connected to the normal things that they need. And you see this by the excess. I mean, it almost looked like hoarding at some point. It looked like they were going to have to line up dumpsters and haul off all the surplus. But here's the point. If God intends you to teach, he will supply you students. If he intends you to counsel, he will providentially, through your desires and providential circumstances, give you the wisdom, the training, and the opportunity to do just that. If he intends you to give, he will give you the resources and the commitment and the unselfishness to marshal what you have and say, here, Lord, I'm giving back to you what you've given to me in the first place. Where he guides, he provides. Look at chapter 36, verses 3 through 7. How the people just kept bringing and bringing the needed material until there was way too much. And the surplus was a problem. We're told that it was so excessive that all the craftsmen came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses said, enough. Thanks, but turn it off. God's work, here it is. God's work with God's spirit-endowed people will have God's provision to accomplish God's purpose. And that's part of what we need to tell ourselves. Where he leads, where he guides, he'll provide. Now, briefly, I want us to look, as we think, as we've looked at workers with the Spirit, I want us to look and consider a dwelling for the Spirit in our remaining time. We've seen workers with the Spirit, and now a dwelling for the Spirit. I want you to see that from chapter 36, we're thinking now about the tabernacle. From chapter 36 and verse 8 to the end of the chapter, we have all that was required for the construction of the tabernacle. I notice maybe some of you are enjoying the picture here. I'm so appreciative of our AV team for organizing that. We read of the materials, the dimensions, the quantities, the arrangement, the orientation, even in north, south, west, and east, in the specifications. Nothing substantive is left out. Little is really left to the imagination. There are some of you that are so artistic that if you had the materials on the ground, I think you could take this text, and even if you didn't see this picture, you could create something that would approximate what's up there. You're that, it was that clear to them. There are curtains and frames and bases and rings and clasps and loops and bars 
in couplings, in pillars, in hooks, in capitals, in fillets. My intention has never been to dive into the weeds of all specifics, of all the specifics of the construction. Some of you know I spent 30 years doing that. And we have no record of Bezalel or Oholiab or any of the other craftsmen sending out a RFI, a request for information. Though no doubt there were questions and discussions between Moses, Bezalel, Aholiab, and the craftsmen as you would expect. I think if some of you were taking, if you were tasked to take fine twine linen and you had a pile of blue yarn and purple yarn and scarlet yarn, that the way you would put that fabric together and weave the cherubim, if you had different, different, 10 different Groups of workers, the fabric, the the curtain fabric would look different. But there's no record of conflict in that, even though surely there was discussion. Yahweh, by the leadership skill and the instruction of spirit-endowed men, was creating a dwelling for God in the spirit. And it's hard to believe because this is around for some 500 years, though no doubt repaired at points in between. God was creating a dwelling for God in the Spirit. Do you remember that moment in Exodus 25:8 when the whole theme of a tabernacle is actually introduced in the first few verses of Exodus 25? The Lord said to Moses, and let them, that is the people of Israel, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is what the tabernacle was all about, God dwelling in the midst of his people. And this is what the covenant, the new covenant is all about. Pastor Jamie spoke to us about this This morning from Ezekiel 36, we read, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. But in the construction of the tabernacle, God was making a dwelling for the Spirit that would point to the greater reality of Him dwelling in us. Are you a Christian tonight? Then you're a dwelling. Paul tells us, as we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we as the people of God are a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, the church and every every church with a little c, is built by the Spirit, is endowed with the gifts of the Spirit for a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It was Sinclair Ferguson who said that at Pentecost, we find simply the inaugural outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the people of God for a dwelling with, for for a, I'm sorry, give me just a second. That at Pentecost, We have the inaugural outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the people of God who are now known as the people of the Spirit because we have received the Spirit without measure from Jesus, the sent one who Jesus says in John 3.34 utters the very words of God. 
Now I want you to see in the furnishings, that is what goes in the tabernacle, and it's very logical here in chapter 37, as we'll see in verses 1 through 9 first, the ark, all right? Everything that goes in the tabernacle is also listed here that what we're going to see in, in chapters 37 and 38 is found in Exodus 25 and 26. Though in chapter 25 and 26, the specifications for the furniture is listed in reverse order. It's listed prior to the specifications for the tabernacle that we find uh, in those chapters. Whereas here, we have the tabernacle first, chapter 36, and then the furnishings of the tabernacle, all right? But then later, look for a minute at chapter 35. The order that you see in verses 10 through 19 is the basically the table of contents for what we're going to find in chapters 36, 37, 38, or 36 through 39. So the summary in 35 verses 10 through 19 corresponds with chapters 36 through 39. Notice just four specific furnishings. The ark. On top of the ark was what? The mercy seat of pure gold. The, the mercy seat of pure gold. And as the original specifications for the ark and the mercy seat there are given in chapter 25 verses 10 through 22. And then the ark was found, the testimony, the writer of the book of Hebrews will speak of this later. And there at the mercy seat, in between the two cherubim, in between the two cherubim, God promised to meet with and speak to his people through his representative. All right? You read of that in chapter 25 in verse 22. So there's the ark. But on top of it, this mercy seat of pure gold. And I want you to note, it, note that in Romans 3 and verse 25, when Paul writes, when Paul writes that God, of Jesus Christ, that God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, that word for propitiation is the very same word that we find in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 5 where it's translated the mercy seat. The mercy seat of Hebrews 9, 5 is the same word translated propitiation in Romans 3, 25. And it's why James J.I. Packer says that the three words that bring the entire New Testament into focus are these three words, adoption by propitiation. And he says, one of the things you must tell yourself when you wake up in the morning and you go to bed at night is I, if you're a Christian, I am a child of God. God is my father, and therefore every Christian is my brother or sister. Well, secondly, you see not just the ark and the mercy seat, above it with the cherubim, but you see the table or the table for bread, we say it, there in verses 10 through 16. In verses 10 through 16. The original specifications given 
chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. Of course, in coming weeks, we'll see even how these are used, and we'll see the greater significance to to these. Tonight, it's just introductory. Third, I want us to see that this lampstand, there's the lampstand, or what's known as the golden lampstand there in verse Verses 17 through 24. It's like the mercy seat. It's made of pure gold. And anytime something's made of pure gold, take particular notice. The stand, the lamp, or the lamps, the cups, the flowers, the tongs, the trays are all pure gold. And the original specifications for this were found in chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. And that lamp was to be kept burning from evening to morning by Aaron and his sons with oil, pure beaten oil. You read of that in chapter 27. If you'll look at that, he says, verse 20, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil, that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. No doubt we'll connect this to Jesus who says, one of his sayings, that I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And fourth, I want us to see simply this altar of incense. Paul picks up on this theme later as he speaks about the fragrance of Christ, that there will be this incense that's part of worship, that God finds authorized, proper, holy worship to be pleasing. It's like to his nostrils, God delights in the right worship from his people. And the original specifications for that are in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. So daily, daily Aaron was to burn this fragrant incense on it, but once a year in his role as high priest, he was to make atonement with the blood of the sin offering uh, there on the altar of incense. You'll notice as you look at all the details for the tabernacle in chapter 36 and then these four furnishings for the tabernacle, one inside the veil in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, that is the ark, topped by the mercy seat, and then outside of that, the table and the lampstand and the altar of incense. You'll notice that every single piece has Uh, It's specific materials, it's details, it's arrangement, it's location. And nothing's left to the imagination. Pastor Jamie referenced this this morning, a couple of weeks ago. We spoke of the regulative principle of worship, or the RPW. God has not left his worship up to our imagination, or even our creativity. And in kindness, he gives us the elements of worship. So, for example, this. We don't use wine when we have communion. We just use grape juice, and we, we use these little crackers. But one of the things that is regulated is that we do it, we have communion, we observe it in a regular way. It's for Christians. It, it dramatizes the gospel through its two symbols, through its two elements, the bread 
and the Jews, all right? And beyond that, whether we observe it every week, which is a circumstance, or once a month, or whether we were to have wine and juice, or whether we were to have a common loaf of bread and everyone comes up here and takes it, the point is that this is one of the elements of worship that God has given us. And in kindness that he's done that. He regulates it. Though we have this broad freedom in him to order the circumstances of worship. If you will, he is a precise God. I want you to think about this. When J.I. Packer was describing the, the Puritans in their sense of conscience, he said that their view of what he called the Holy Scriptures dictated that God must control their conscience. Absolutely. That God alone is Lord of the conscience. Of course, Paul affirms that in the book of Romans. And so, J.I. Packer tells of Charles Haddon Spurgeon sharing something about this Puritan Richard Rogers who was being given a bad time about how precise and exact he was. He was defending his precision to someone who was giving him a really bad time. And so Mr. Rogers said this in response to why he was so precise. He said, oh, sir, replied Rogers, I serve a precise God. And by that we don't mean a God who is not gracious, not a God, as we learned last month from Exodus 34, 6, and 7, who says in self-proclamation, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. But a God who's precise. He does not play with his worship, nor with making the dwelling place of his spirit. Representatively, and for his people Israel, that was the tabernacle. Today, it is us, the church. As I alluded to earlier, Paul pressed the Corinthians with the priority of sexual purity with this word in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. He said they must need run from sexual immorality. You fight it, he says, by fleeing it. What was his rationale? He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. But Paul broadens this. It goes from more narrow to broader with a corporate view of God's dwelling or the dwelling of God in the Spirit in Ephesians 2 in the very last verse of the chapter. How about turn there with me for a moment as we close to Ephesians chapter 2. For the tabernacle, he provided workers with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit to make a dwelling for the Spirit, a peculiar place for the presence of God. But what does he say of the church? We find it in Ephesians 2, and we find what, he, where, what we were. We were dead in our, our trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1. We were separated from Christ, verse 12. We were far off, verse 13. But now he has brought us near by the blood of Christ. Pick up with me now in verse 14. 
There's a fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, verse 5. And he is our peace, or for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Look at verse 19 now. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, tabernacle, temple, dwelling of God in the spirit. And he concludes with this. In him, you also, not you singular, you plural, we plural, the people of God also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The tabernacle proceeded and gave way to the temple which proceeded and gave way to the church of the Lord Jesus, purchased by his blood, a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. In conclusion, are you born again? Do you have the Spirit within you? Does your life manifest the fruit of the Spirit, or are you a barren tree? Are you always resisting the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, refusing to keep in step with the Spirit because you're still dead in your sins? But the door of mercy is flung wide open. You run to him and you say, I want your spirit in me. Give me Christ. Give me Christ's spirit. Give me life in the spirit. And it's Jesus who says, and we tend to focus on the first part, all that the Father has given me will come to me because we're good Calvinists. But look what he says. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. beg for the spirit and believer I want to say this to you what would our body look like what would Grace Baptist Church Taylor's look like if daily we prayed this Lord please let me walk in the spirit fill me with the fruit of your spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law today let me not grieve the Holy Spirit of God because you were you said that by him I and every Christian was sealed for the day of redemption. Imagine today if you prayed and I prayed and we prayed, do not let me get drunk with wine or anything that would wrap its tentacles around my heart and my affections in a form of debauchery. And we prayed, but be filled, God, fill me with your spirit that I might be addressing my brothers and sisters in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He who gives the workers with the spirit, he who makes his church into a dwelling for God by the Spirit says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it.
Let's ask together.